From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in Ed Price right now. He's a senior fellow and uh, at NYU and a former British trade official, also um, has been in advisory posts for a lot of very important bodies like the European Parliament. Uh, and Ed, I, we, we got to talk first about, well, maybe only about inflation, right? Whether yeah. it's here or there. Um, what do you think about the numbers that we saw today? 8.6% um, is the headline number. And it makes me wonder... Can the Fed really afford to still prefer core PCE, or do they have to look at headline CPI? The latter, and yeah. quickly, and immediately, and fast. And like, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself on your show, so if I'm getting boring, kick me out. Mm -hmm. But like, let's do this, right? Let's yeah. hike. Let's hike quickly. Um, but you mentioned Europe, and, and I feel like if the problem over here is a sort of traditional inflationary spiral that a you know, there's a traditional way for a central bank to get past that, which is a recession. I think they've got other problems in Europe, as we were saying, right? Yeah. So this is like yesterday, the ECB meeting, uh, I was watching it. Wait, was it yesterday? Yeah. 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 Was it yesterday? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like forever ago. I was watching it and thinking um, Lagarde has no way to stop inflation if she wants to avoid what we're calling fragmentation now by the way that's a new term for me i did not right. know that but yeah. basically it means the peripheral bond spreads are blowing out um or if she wants to worry about that inflation is going to run buck wild as right. we say here in america right? <laughs> right so um what happens either basically the whole system has to change right because they can't continue operating monetary policy for europe as a whole and have each individual country run its own budget and lending and yep. borrowing <clears throat> Right. So when you say that they're, they're running uh, monetary policy for Europe as a whole, that's right. And what they're thinking about is not just the, the 19 member Eurozone economy, but they're also thinking about the single currency itself. Uh, and, you know, we were saying before before I came on uh, 10 years ago, we were we were seriously talking about the euro area breaking apart, which is when Draghi said he'll do whatever it takes, whatever it famously. takes, baby. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, can they do whatever it takes now? And what is whatever it takes? What what would it be? So if you look at, you know, CPI inflation in, in the euro area, 8.1, you look at their 4.9 trillion uh, euro balance sheet, it, it's sort of a bad cyclical story. And BTP spreads getting close to 300, closer and closer to the, BTP to the danger zone. The danger zone, exactly, which is, of course, top BTP again, spread. So that's Italian borrowing right now costs uh, for 10 years, I think, 350 basis points. And... 
the buns are at a hundred and change. So the spread yep. is okay. two and a half percent. Okay. Yeah. Which is something that we saw. We used to call that the frayed rope, if you remember, the, the, the spread between the periphery and the center in the I'm Euro I'm afraid area. not. I'm afraid <laughs> not, right. I'll go back and dig out some of my dusty lectures. <laughs> How long do you have? But, but basically, like, this is one of the key um, risk indicators for the basically the existence of the euro itself, right? If it becomes too expensive for euro area countries on the periphery to borrow, and those countries, by the way, often need to borrow more than your average uh, Central European country, at some point, uh, somebody in their finance ministry says, you know what, maybe we should just leave this currency. Well, in fact, in 2011, um, the concern was that, that exactly that would happen, right? right. That the whole yep. uh, uh, project, I'll still call it, would break up. Now I'm thinking post-pandemic, especially after we had the, I think, 750 billion euro mm -hmm. stimulus, now it could go the other way. They could mm -hmm. become the United States of Europe if the richer countries were willing to play along, right? That's my central case now. Um, not everyone will agree with that, but I think that that's the direction of travel. And I think there's two things to say. One, of course, that involves some sort of German consent on the fiscal side. But I think the other thing is that if you look at the logic of any currency, um, the, the size and importance of the euro, we're going to have to move the capital market situation in Europe in a sort of open an open direction in order that they can create the sort of depth and liquidity that you see in the US and the UK. So that's a bit of a contradiction because on the one hand, you've got the German instinct, which is top-down economic policy. And on the other hand, you need what they would say is Anglo-Saxon market forces. What would prompt Germany to take a bigger role to allow that to happen, to allow a United States of Europe? Well, I think it would be some sort of shift, and Matt will know more about this having, having been in Germany for so long, some sort of shift in the German mentality as to leadership, which is, um, I think, a word in German that you, you don't always want to use, right? Well, you could argue they're, taking, they're changing their views what, on... What, leadership? Leadership, yeah, <laughs> you could, right? You could, you could argue with they're changing their views on the military here with yes, Ukraine. Yeah, they're yeah. changing their views, and they spend a lot to support... The Europe during the pandemic and things like that. Yeah, so maybe they a, are changing. Yeah, there's. A, I think they are. I think there's a, a, like a hundred billion euro um, defense fund that the Germans have now agreed to, and, and they're, they're of course going to meet their two. Well, they agreed later. to it in 2012. They're finally fulfilling that. Promise. They're finally fulfilling it, right? So there's there's an external pressure that's kind of pushing them in in the right direction. But my question is, what's the sticker going to be on those tanks? Is it going to be the German cross or is it going to be the European Union flag? Um, it ah. has to be the European Union flag be. because be. uh, even, you know, German voters won't allow no. um, the Iron Cross to come back. I want to just finally ask you about America, get back to the U.S. Yep. here. We had the University of Michigan consumer sentiment um, gauge come in at a record low. Uh, what kind of change has to happen here? Is Biden rewriting his speech furiously right now on the USS Iowa? <laughs> he may well be. I don't know. I wish I knew. Um, that, those reads were terrible. I mean, that's really scary stuff. I, what's the opposite of Buck Wild? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but it's not good, right? No, no, it's tough. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the consumers out there are, you know, that's inflation's hitting them. But, you know, there's some, we had Jonathan Golub on earlier uh, from, I believe he's at, where's he, where's he now? Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse. He says the economy's still strong, got a strong labor market and so on yeah, and so but forth. He's but he's been a bull for 20 <clears throat> I know, years. I know, dude. I know. I mean, no offense, he's in my motorcycle gang. Oh, nice to know. Me, Jonathan Golub. Uh, Lefkovich, Binky Chada, we had a gang back in the day. All right, Ed Price, senior fellow uh, and former trade official. Uh, he's at NYU now, but he comes up and sees us every once in a while. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Well, our next guest, Matt, uh, she got her MBA from Darden. That's the University of Virginia's business school. And I went down there to visit there. They said, we work harder than anybody else. It is a tough workload, but it makes you a better person. I said, that's the last thing I'm looking for. Exactly. You're dressed in the, in the UVA color. So I went to Duke instead. The NBA folks, they, it, it darted and they work way too hard. But Nishita Henry joins us. Uh, she's a chief innovation officer for Deloitte Consulting. Um, Nishita, we're, we're, we're parsing through here like a lot of investors are, kind of this really hot inflation uh, data point that we got today. And we're also paying attention to the port of Los Angeles, uh, where the president is going today as we think about uh, supply chain issues and, and how they contribute to inflation. Love to get your thoughts because this is something you look at, your thoughts on the supply chain and kind of what you're hearing from your clients, what you're telling your clients. Absolutely. Thanks for having me today. Um, you know, supply chain, it's an interesting thing. No one really thought about it before the pandemic. And then as they got disrupted and you couldn't get what you needed on the store shelves or you had to wait months to order uh, big equipment, it became a reality to everyday Americans um, and everyday citizens around the globe. And what we're seeing more and more is that factories really haven't modernized and taken advantage of Industry 4.0 technologies in a way that helps them better predict demand, uh, better adjust in real time to disruptions like um, inavailability of raw material or machines going down or labor shortages. Um, and we're all about helping the manufacturing industry um, embrace at scale those technologies that are going to enable them to create more efficient and predictive supply chains. So, you, so you're the chief innovation officer at Deloitte Consulting, but you're also working on the smart factory at Wichita. What is that? Ah, absolutely. Yeah. So as a chief innovation officer, my role is to invest in, incubate, and test and scale new businesses for our firm. Um, and one of those things involves the smart factory, which is a physical experience as well as a digital platform. Um, the physical experience is in Wichita, Kansas, in conjunction with over 20 uh, ecosystem partners that we've curated to come together to create a one-of-a-kind industry 4.0 factory of the future. Um, and the exciting thing there is it's a real working production facility. We are making smart rover kits. Um, that actually we will be providing into communities um, to impact over the next four years 800,000 um, young people to get interested in STEM fields. So it is a, a dual-purpose facility where we get to demonstrate new technology of the future for Industry 4.0. We get to actually manufacture and in real time have the same challenges our clients do. Uh, we get to implement a platform that connects all of the uh, physical to the digital and we get to impact uh, young people and, uh, you know, hopefully help with upcoming, uh, you know, labor challenges, um, actually current labor challenges, uh, but that we're breaking through through new techniques. Hey, uh, Nishida, is just-in-time inventory dead? I mean, Matt Miller's got to wait months to get a Chevy Silverado. I'm just not <laughs> sure 
this pandemic didn't lay bare some of the real, real uh, weaknesses of just-in-time inventory. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's interesting is, you know, the just-in-time inventory, either people plan too tightly, um, they can't predict demand well enough. So, you know, just-in-time means that you've actually made plans um, several months in advance in order to make sure that inventory gets there just-in-time. Um, and so it's not just just in time at the end point, it's just in time all along the value chain. Um, and, you know, sometimes actually, I was just listening to the morning news a few days ago, there's a lot of excess inventory. There's excess inventory yes. of leisure clothes, right? Because we couldn't predict that people wouldn't want to wear leisure clothes after the pandemic. Yep. <laughs> I know I have too many, right? Um, and so I think it works both ways. They're, the incremental approaches have actually been just add more inventory, add more capacity. And we're saying, actually, no, just-in-time can work, but you need better data, you need better connectivity, um, and you need better insights in order to make that work. And this has been the issue for Walmart and Target and everything is out of whack. When do you think the supply chain comes back in order? Oh, that's a great question. I wish I could predict the future. But I think in the next um, three to six months, you know, people have been um, working hard in order to get the front part of the chain working, right? Whether it's more raw materials, it's better core assemblies to create the end products. Uh, but I think it's going to take us, um, you know, a couple years to really be on this transformation journey to get to a point where disruptions like the pandemic won't cause these supply chain issues, right? We're going to come out of these supply chain issues um, because the world will be getting back to semi um, more normal paces, um, even if we have continued global, you know, upheavals around geopolitical issues, et cetera. Um, but we have to be able to adjust to future disruptions for which we know there will be. All right, Nishida, good stuff. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting your insights there. Nishida Henry, Chief Innovation Officer at Deloitte Consulting. So much for the quiet Friday here uh, at the beginning of summer with the CPI data kind of, you know, really coming in hotter than expected. Although core, maybe you could argue the core has peaked. We'll, we'll talk about that. University of Michigan uh, sentiment stuff, that got my attention, came in much weaker than expected. So some really negative data that we're seeing reflected in the market. Of course, what do I do? I blame The Economist. Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg's Economics, joins us. Anna, it's all your fault, uh, no question about it. What do you take away from, you know, the inflation data today, the University of Michigan data today? What are your takeaways? Yeah, so uh, with inflation data, the, the upside surprises uh, was so large that I think uh, it pushes the peak further out, um, and we could still see uh, uh, inflation pushing up, possibly breaching 9% in September. Oh. So that quashes any notion that the Fed will be pausing in September. If anything, this probably put the 75 bips back on the table, but for later this year, we... Um, and we expect now in our baseline that uh, 50 bits would be in the September meeting as well as in the November meeting. And on the consumer sentiment report, you know, Americans just really hate inflation, um, but that does not always translate into spending actions. Um, and, you know, older cities from 1970 is rationality and the inflationary sentiment in that people just feel like something is taken away from them if uh, inflation rises, even though even if nominal wage were to, uh, you know, rises on par with inflation. It's true because I feel that way, too. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Anna, 
we were talking about the possibility of the Fed raising at a quicker pace or maybe um, in bigger clips. 75 basis points, somebody um, suggested that, that uh, Paul was talking about earlier. So I was thinking, what's the most the Fed has ever raised rates by? And I looked back um, in the data. I only got back to 1980 when I saw that Volcker in February of that year raised 5% at one meeting. What? Yeah. Um, <laughs> What do you expect from our Federal Reserve? Well, you know, um, Larry Summers put out a paper earlier this week showing that if you adjust the methodology of CPI, in fact, the amount of disinflation the Fed has to do today is the same as what the, the Volcker has to do. But our own team member, David Wilcox, looked at that and um, argued that the, the Fed actually follows PCE deflators uh, rather than CPI. And that in that you know, that measure, the PCE uh, deflator, would show that inflation problem is half as, today, is half as large as back in, in the Volcker days, which means that the Fed probably has to do less than the Volcker compared to the Volcker years. And on top of that, um, inflation expectations measures show that the expectations have not anchored yet. So that also is another uh, argument for why the Fed does not need to do as much as Paul Volcker back then. And in reality, uh, Anna, there's real tangible limits to what this Federal Reserve can do vis-a-vis -vis inflation because so much of the headline stuff was, you know, energy. And what I hear, there's just not enough refining capacity out there in the world given the demand. Uh, food, um, there's not much you can do about the supply chain and maybe the war in Ukraine. So there's some things that are out of the Fed's kind of, uh, you know, kind of bailiwick here. So um, what kind of message when we hear from Chairman Powell, when he answers questions next week, what do you think we're going to hear from this Fed? I think Chairman Powell would, would reiterate the lesson that they had learned last year from that mistake from not, not raising rates early enough, which is that the Fed's job is to affect price stability through demand channels. And they should just take all the fiscal policy and supply shocks as given. And what they could do is to keep their eyes on, on the ball of price stability and uh, reduce demand in order to change, uh, you know, lower inflation. So you said, yeah, the Fed cannot do anything about gas prices or food prices, but they ha can do something about uh, inflation expectations. And even if that means that, unfortunately, they have to lower demand in order to cool the prices, they will have to do that. Well, the, the government definitely can do something about gas prices. My boss was just in the studio um, telling us that he drove through Massachusetts to get to Connecticut before he filled up because they've cut the tax there. Any chance that uh, this administration or um, state governments are going to start doing that en masse, cutting taxes? Yeah, you know, that's actually a really good point. So part of the stimulus um, um, went into state government government budgets. And it looks like that a lot of them have not used them up yet. That's why state budgets are, are actually looking very good this year. Also, partly because property taxes have, has, has been generating a lot more revenues given, given the hot housing market. From your government. mouth to God's ears, Anna Wong, <laughs> is there any chance that I'm going to get back the state and local tax deduction stolen from me? <laughs> Back in, uh, what was it, 2017. I mean, I don't know how much longer I can live with these taxes. 
Well, uh, you have student debt, maybe. <laughs> you have student debt that will give you back some money. Nope, sadly. Nope. I mean, I'm glad I don't have student debt, um, thanks to my mom, who is a professor uh, at a Great Lakes College Association. I was granted free tuition at another Great Lakes College Association school. Um, so I'm lucky in that nice. sense. But there's no – my student debt, if I had it, wouldn't be as high as my annual property taxes <laughs> in Scarsdale. It's insane. Well, I'm sure you your your income would be enough to, to, to uh, support your spending on other areas. All right, Anna. So we've got this uh, inflation print here. I'm wondering about the labor side of the equation. Are we going to see or are we seeing – wage inflation here if so is this spiral thing is that a, a risk well um you know a lot of cost of index um measures linked to nominal wage growth is is indexed to cpi so if the cpi is you know going on continuing on an upward trajectory the kind of alarming bills that we should be looking out for for a wage price spiral is if you see wages being indexed to more and more, you know, wage 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 contracts are indexed to CPI, um, and uh, yeah, I think I think if 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 gas prices continue to be at this at this this trajectory, even reaching one seventy dollars per barrel or two hundred later this year, we would have a risk of uh, expectations on anchoring generating a wage price fire. All right. Good stuff. Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist from Bloomberg uh, Economics, Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. I love calling this out every time. It's really cool because those people are wicked smart, and they're very good with the numbers and B.A. in economics from Berkeley. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of A.I. adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. Joining us in our studios are Wall Street reporter Shonali Basik. Shonali, I know you sat down with Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon recently. What did you two, kid, two kids talk about? Well, what's interesting is actually it's not just him. It was a Jane Frazier of Citigroup and David Siegel of Two Sigma. Name and dropper. NASDAQ CEO. Yeah, well, it's so fascinating. They, they did an exercise with me for the 30th anniversary of Markets Magazine to look forward. Bloomberg Markets Magazine. Exactly. Yes. To look forward the next 30 years. And what they really thought of is, okay, what is in the early stages of innovation like the internet was in the early 90s? Crypto. And, well, none of, only, <laughs> Keep it only, on your screen. Only David Siegel of Two Sigma mentioned crypto by name. Uh, the rest had talked about digital assets a lot. Jane Fraser, the CEO of Citigroup. But digital assets, when you talk about digital assets, you're basically um, talking about crypto, right? They're talking about blockchain-based assets. Blockchain-based assets. Yeah. Tokenization is what Jane Fraser talked about. She said this, that we are moving towards a boundless virtual economy in which markets do not open or close. Uh, and so uh, one thing is certain, she said, 2050 will be virtual. 
people and it will be boundless. So uh, actually, Adina Friedman of NASDAQ said technology will exist for every asset on the planet to be digitized. And David Solomon, he actually talked more about energy. We could talk about that in a second. But as it pertains to blockchain, the one thing he did say is that while the technology is good for many things, it really needs to be more scalable. And scalability is one of the big challenges moving forward to, to see if blockchain will really be one of the main technologies of the next 30 I just years. want to uh, quickly ask about how we get hold of this. I mean, obviously, I know being in this building, I can just grab a Bloomberg Markets magazine. But I also suspect there's an online component because I know you have um, – audio at, at the very least mm -hmm. of, of these interviews. Yeah, just read it on Bloomberg.com or on the terminal. I, you know, it's on it's on the main ah, website. Ah, Bloomberg.com, <laughs> we get to Mark's Magazine there. I never go on the website because obviously I have the terminal in front of me. Yeah, these stories are online. It's, it's being very well read and shared right now. We also spoke to, oh, let, let me mention the energy thing, guys, real quick, yeah. because we did have three out of the six CEOs we speak to talk about the climate transition. Okay. Again, David Siegel, one of the greatest quantitative thinkers in the finance industry, really said that it was decarbonization technology that he was most excited about and david solomon Man, with oil at 120 bucks a barrel i mean i don't know can he but just wait what does he mean by decarbonization <laughs> like um getting carbon out of the atmosphere like that kind of technology out of the atmosphere out of uh, corporate functions i mean david solomon and david siegel had talked about the need for more government intervention really public private partnerships and really the government incentivizing a lot more of this investment. so you just mean in general kind of clean energy you're not talking clean about energy. like actually technology that removes carbon from the air well that too because i think that's really cool yes yeah. and and by the way you know again david siegel great quantitative technology thinker uh, also talked not just about energy but technology that can change medicine uh, he had some really strong language imagine the transformation to our civilization if we could develop treatments for some of the diseases that have plagued humanity forever yeah. all right i'm going to switch gears just a little bit because but it's right in your wheelhouse this week i think i saw my first headline about wall street cutting headcount because business is so bad and it was just six months ago, literally six months ago, when you couldn't hire enough people. Didn't I and you tell couldn't, you this And you couldn't happen. pay them enough people. <laughs> they were raising the pay for these guys every couple of months. But, it, it, I mean, markets are tough. And the first quarter and second quarter, p and is not going to look good for these companies. However, people are hiring in technology okay. because they need to keep up with the pace of innovation. And thousands of people at Citigroup, for example. And when that's I talked good. to that's, that, yeah. that's good because there's a bunch of people who thought they were going to go work at Coinbase. Yeah, <laughs> and had their thing. offers rescinded. So where can they go? Uh, <laughs> City. Yeah, seriously. But All right. yeah, I, so things are getting tougher out there. That is for sure. Yeah, that's going to be something to follow as we come up with the second quarter numbers. That, you know, what they're thinking about, what pay mm -hmm. and headcount, because literally six months ago, there was no ceiling on either of those things. Now it's just so, just amazing how quickly it turns. And having lived on the street for many years, I've experienced that Shout firsthand. out to the interns that started this week, by the way. Oh, speaking of hiring. Here at Bloomberg? Everywhere on Wall Street. Everywhere on Wall Street. The streets of New York oh, okay. are filled okay. with college kids. Good, so. good stuff, good stuff. It's a good uh, cycle there. Shanali Bassett, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate, and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions, alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.